Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, Pastor Ben Hartwig teaches us from the book of Ephesians. In this sermon, we're reminded that God keeps all His promises and that His promises are absolute and certain. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 as Pastor Ben delivers his message on God's promises. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off. Um, we, uh, weeks ago, uh, began with those first 10 verses, and we're going to continue this. Uh, we're just going to go through the rest of the chapter, 11 through 23 there, and just continue this in, in an overview manner that we had uh, been doing previously. And so Paul, as he lays out the spiritual blessings in Christ, uh, he continues this on. He goes through a thanksgiving because of, as we said last time, what he is dealing with at Ephesus isn't like what he dealt with at Corinth. Um, it isn't like those other matters that he was having to deal with. This was He was trying to take people that were getting it. He was trying to take people that really got it, and he was trying to take them to even the next level and, and to really um, take their potential, if you will, that they have in the inheritance that they have in Christ and, and take that and, and for the glory of God, as uh, is a major theme in this, uh, in, this in this entire letter. So we begin there at verse 11, chapter 1. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Now, uh, right there in verse 15, uh, speaking of faith, that would be a good place to underline. And love, that would be a good place to underline there in, um, in verse 15. Faith, love. I do not cease, verse 16, to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, help us. Lord, to understand who we are in Christ. And uh, Father, that we, as we get it, that we would take this knowledge and this wisdom and this inheritance that, yes, is not complete yet, but we do already have it in our possession. It just hasn't been fully realized. And Father, that we would take this recognizing what we have, our potential of what we are doing, and seek to bring glory to you in the things that we do, recognizing that most of this stuff 
that uh, that we do on a day-to-day basis, a lot of it just really ultimately, eternally does not matter. But Father, it is for your glory, your praise, and your honor. Give us help in this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our culture wants to talk a lot about potential, right? Our culture is constantly bombarding us with this idea of potential. What is your potential? Have you reached your full potential? Um, You have the potential to be anything you want to be. Some people say that's not really true for everybody, but you will hear that. Um, That might be true for some, not so much for others. But, you know, what if you receive an inheritance, a, a earthly inheritance? Well, now maybe your potential is a little greater than it was before. But what about Christians? You know, if we read this, what do we think whenever we think about Christians? Because in this passage, Paul shows us what is really an an awesome and wonderful potential here that we have as Christians. So for Christians, there truly really is this potential because we possess it all. Now, whether we get a full grasp of that or not, which we don't, but if we we, we possess it all in, in an eternal sense, we will possess it all in a much more realized sense one day. So what the apostle's doing here is he's giving us a glimpse into the glorious blessings of God that he has planned for us and promised to those, of course, that come to him through his son. Now there's a great promise. There's a lot of great promises in this passage. And while the promise for me, if I promise you something, that may not mean a whole lot. If even your husband or your wife promises something to you that may or may not come to fruition. But this promise, we know, comes from the Lord. And a promise that comes from the Lord, we are thankful for because every promise he keeps, he, he makes, he keeps, and he does it without fail. And so what he is, Paul is mentioning here in the promise that our Heavenly Father is making to his children, not only are wonderful and exciting, but they are absolute and certain. They're without fail. We think of Abraham. You know, when Abraham was made a promise, every believer should be fully assured what God promises he is able, he is certain to complete. And ours is a God that cannot and will not lie. And so the passage concludes a a viciously long run-on sentence there in which Paul, he's pouring out his praise to God for immeasurable grace. He presents to you, he presents to, he presents to us the, the Father's guarantee of His divine promise to His children. And so we are certain to receive this full, undiminished inheritance of Jesus Christ. Just as we have been blessed, as we're told in the passage, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing and chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. These wonderful things that come to us, is, He also tells us we have obtained an inheritance. That if we are in Him, this has already happened. This is ours now, if we're saved. But it is, of course, we realize primarily future. We're told that we were elected, we were predestined before the world and even time existed. We have been redeemed now in the present, right? The present age. And we receive then our completed inheritance in the ages to come when we enter fully, of course, into the Father's kingdom. This inheritance as our potential is the matter that we have at hand for us now. And so in these first few verses here in 11 and about the first half of verse 13, 
To say that in Christ, and there's a lot of in Christ, those two words, in Christ, being in Christ. To say that in Christ, and we get this throughout the entirety of the letter, to say that in Christ we've obtained an inheritance is to say that we've been allotted a portion. Now, whenever we're talking about this inheritance, we've been allotted not a portion of a portion, we've been allotted a full portion. What we need to see and, and what we need to grasp and what he's trying, what he's pushing for the uh, Ephesians to grasp is... In this wonderfully rich passage within the context of the larger letter is that those who believe in him, those who are heirs with Christ, this was not an unplanned event. This wasn't something that really God just didn't have prepared beforehand. Because remember, we know from what the, uh, the, the chapter tells us is that God had planned it and he had planned it from all eternity. God is sovereign or God is not sovereign. And we do believe that he is indeed sovereign. And so by definition, he's sovereign. He directs all these things. He does this freely according to his own royal counsel. And of course, this is in sharp contrast of the pagan gods that Paul had to deal with. This is in sharp contrast of the pagan gods that we deal with today. Gods that are, are fickle. Gods that are, are bound to, to an arbitrary fate. But sadly, this is what a lot of Christians practically and, and pragmatically do with the one true God. They often reduce him down to something that they attempt to manipulate. God can't be manipulated, but that's the attempt. And that's what this passage is stating otherwise. God's wonderful predestination gives his people wonderful comfort. That's what it's there for, to give us wonderful comfort because we know that all who come to Christ, they do so through God's enabling grace, his divine appointment. Paul tells us clearly that he works all things and he does it according to the counsel of his will. And it's simply under, to be understood to mean that every single event that occurs in some sense has been put there by God. God's surprised by nothing. God is shocked by nothing. But also in this passage, Paul also emphasizes the importance of the human's responsibility, of our responsibility, as he will do in a very big way in the concluding chapters of this, of this letter. And he does in his other letters as well. Paul, in all of those remarkable efforts in spreading the gospel, Paul believed that doing personal evangelism and making conscious choices and following God, obeying God, this was absolutely essential in God's plan. And so God uses human means to fulfill what he has ordained. But then what happens? People say, well, what about bad stuff? What about evil stuff? What about whenever bad things happen? What about the Christians in Nigeria that are being slaughtered right now? What about that? Well... Those things are asked often. But if you notice, the biblical writers, they don't blame God for these things. You never find, whenever how can God let these awful things happen? Never once do you see Paul ask that question. Never once do you see any of the biblical writers ask such a question, how can God do such a thing? They never blame God for these things. Instead, what happens is exactly the way we are to view these things and, and to see the doctrine of God's sovereignty as a means of comfort. This is a means of assurance, confident that while evil does exist, it will not triumph. God's good plans will be fulfilled for His children. And I would even argue... I don't know the whole story, but I would even argue that the Nigerian Christians might understand that better than you and I do. So as I said before, and as I said when we went through the first part of this chapter, 
God's sovereignty and our human responsibility, they work together in the world. It's a mystery that I don't understand completely, and if you do, you can explain it to me, but when we try to dumb it down, when we attempt to explain it away, we are attempting, we're not going to, but we're attempting to reduce God to little more than the pagan gods that can be manipulated. So the truth of the matter is that apart from Christ, the only ultimate and eternal thing that a person can receive from God is condemnation. God gives the sunshine, God gives the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike, but His spiritual blessings are bestowed only on those who are in Him. This is so certain, as we find laid out in this passage for us, in the assurance that we have in this passage, that this is so certain that this cannot possibly fail to happen. It is spoken of here as if it has already occurred, because it has. That's assurance. That's the assurance that we have. That's the assurance that we like to talk about. And so what it means is that our every need, it's met by the provision of God in accordance with His providence, His promises promise being no better than the ground for the promise right this promise is grounded in jesus christ and while we tend to look at things from our own perspective we're going to attempt to take a look at this from the perspective of god which ultimately obviously we can't do but we're going to try to look at this at the perspective of god from what we're told in the passage because god's view god's perspective on our inheritance in christ is shown in His predestination, it's shown in His power, it's shown in His preeminence. And as Christians, what we are, we are because of what God chose us to chose to make us before anything was created. So who gets the credit, right? We said this last time. We, we said a lot of this before, but He continues this thought on throughout the chapter. And so no man, no fate determines our destiny. This is... Um, all about the universe. This is about the universe embracing plan. Not only did God make this plan, what does He do? He carries it out. And He carries it out to completion. You don't have to wonder whether God's going to be glorified or not. His power. Remember, this is the Creator that spoke the universe into existence. It began to operate just as He planned it to operate. The creation doesn't have to be recharged. It doesn't have to be you know, tested. It doesn't have to have its batteries changed. It doesn't have any of that. God energizes this. God sustains it. He works out what He plans. Then He energizes every believer with the power that is necessary for spiritual completion. God doesn't just simply make the plan. He sees the plan through. So additionally, from His perspective, from God's perspective, is His own preeminence. What does it say? To the praise of His glory, right? That's what it's about. As we go through the chapter as you go through the book that's what it is is to the praise of his glory man is redeemed for what purpose it is for restoring the divine image that was marred by sin we are redeemed to restore the image of God that was marred by sin because God's intention in creating men was that they would bear the divine image salvation's goal is the same as creation's to bear the image properly God wants his prize creations to give him glory by both proclaiming displaying his glory for that reason he redeems men now our culture again is oriented towards humanity our culture is oriented towards men not god uh, unfortunately even many churches are more seemingly more oriented towards humanity and men than they are god but this is not the way the scripture presents salvation. 
we're often, man is often inclined to say that they had the goodness to choose Christ. I had the goodness to choose Christ is because I'm so wonderful that I chose Christ or some nonsense like this. But the Bible has something different to say about this. We seek glory. Why? Because we're prideful. That's why we seek it. Because we're prideful. God seeks glory. Why? Because he deserves it. So it is all from salvation to boundless blessings to what? To the praise of his glory. So if we find that this idea of my responsibility and God's sovereignty being opposed and not working together, if we find all this, that it's actually working together, God's sovereignty, my responsibility. If you find this incomprehensible, please don't make a feeble attempt at reconciliation for these things. What we do is we do just as Paul does right here. We stand and we stand there in awe of the great God and be glad of the salvation that He's given and be glad that it's of His doing and not mine. Faith. That's the response. As He tells us, faith is the response to God's elective purpose. God's choice of men Selection, men's response to God is faith, and in that God gives His promises, and by faith we receive those promises. And so then He goes on to this guarantee in verses 13 and 14, and whenever He speaks of sealed, being sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To what? To the praise of His glory. God pours out His Holy Spirit on His children to guarantee, we might think in terms of a down payment or something like this, but this is to guarantee their share in His eternal kingdom because He applies to them all of God's powerful working in redemption. We want assurance, right? We're human beings. Human beings want assurance. So what do we do? We demand oaths. We demand contracts. We, you know, we want all of these sworn statements and guarantees. You go buy a car, you want a warranty on it, right? How long is this thing going to last before it turns into junk and I have to start fixing it? You know, we want these things. We have to have all of this assurance in our life. Now, God's word should be enough, and it is enough. But in his graciousness, if he could make his promise even more certain, which you can't make God's promise more certain, but if that were possible, what does he do? He gives us the guarantee. He gives us the seal. He gives us the pledge and the Holy Spirit. Because we have it all and haven't received it all in a realized sense yet, in glory, we may question the reality of the greatness of what we possess. This is sealed in the Holy Spirit of promise. Every believer, given the Holy Spirit, the moment they receive Christ, He's there to empower us. What does He do? He equips us, right? He equips us for ministry, function through the gifts, and each gifting that He gives us that is different among us. We have security, security like Daniel would whenever Daniel was in the lion's den. A security that, by the way, doesn't mean, okay, I'll be all right because I'll go in the lion's den and we'll lie down and we'll pet the lion and everything will be good. No, it's a security that says that may happen, but also... I may get devoured by the lion, but either way, there's a security, a seal, you know, there that was placed over Daniel's door as he's locked in there, a seal that uh, if anybody broke beside the king, they would surely uh, forfeit their life. Um, regardless, Daniel, in that instance, was secure, but secure in an infinitely greater way. The Holy Spirit secures each of us marking us with His seal. We're authentic. We're stamped. 
in that sense, with a seal that says that we belong to the divine family. We belong to the kingdom. We are owned by God. We are His. We are the divine possessions who from that moment of conversion on, we eternally belong to Him. Because of this, a certain authority then has been delegated to us. This is, again, this is guaranteed for something larger, a goal, the goal of our inheritance. And although our divine inheritance in Christ, that it's, it's, it's awesome, it's, it's a marvelous thing, it's guaranteed, promised to us from the Lord, that is not the primary purpose of our salvation. As we look at this, when I say, well, I get everything, so that's the primary purpose of salvation. That's why I'm doing this, because I get all this, quote-unquote, stuff. Now, if we get nothing else right here, we have to get this right, because then we begin to get everything else right. And that's what the Ephesians had, and that's why Paul is doing what he's doing, because the Ephesians were getting it. He wasn't dealing with this, this terrible sin like he was dealing with in Corinth, and, and so they were getting it, and so he wanted them to get this right so they got everything else right. Our salvation, our, the promises that we have, the inheritance, the blessings, we... All of this that is gained is, is placed on us with a view primarily to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. That's what it's about. When we understand that, then we get everything else right. So what you have before you is, is the, the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness of God, and, and it's yours. Now we talk about this only in light of being a born-again child of God. Because if you repent and you place faith in Him, it is yours. We are saved to be restored to the intended divine purpose of creation. And that is to bear the image of God and to bring Him glory. Bearing His image, the image restored, bringing Him glory. But we can't do that. I, I can't do that if my, hat, if my heart is, is, is blackened with sin. But if you repent, when you repent, when you trust Christ and see Him in His fullness... You can serve Him. Bring glory to the one who's opened your eyes, the one who's saved you. So he takes that and he goes into this, this larger second portion uh, from verse 15 on to the end of the, uh, the chapter there. And he laid out all the, the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And in the last part here, Paul, he, he offers up a prayer. He offers a prayer for the believers that he writes to, you know, he's writing to them and, and saying that, praying that they would, they would fully understand, they would appreciate these blessings, and as they truly do that, now they are living to the potential. They're living to what God has intended them to be. In this, he, uh, the, this prayer here, he focuses on believers, on, on their comprehension of their resources, the comprehension of what they have in Christ. Paul gives this intercession on their behalf concerning those that are possessors of the treasure. That's us. So it's a response in light of that which he heard. He heard two things of what was going on there. There's things that I ask you that you might mark there in verse 15. That being faith in Christ and love for the other Christians. He praises them for what they're doing. Those two things, faith and love for the brethren, those really are, those are inseparable things. Those things cannot be taken apart. You do this, you do it, and as an example, you, you do this and, and, and you go and with the brothers and the sisters. Now, faith as a resource, faith as, as uh, and, and Paul gives them praise concerning their faith. 
Now, faith as a resource isn't something we often talk about. We don't often say, you know, faith, this, this is a, a great resource for us as believers. The emphasis here is, of course, on true saving faith. This with the Lordship of Jesus Christ as the object of that belief. There are those that want to take Christ as Savior and Christ as Lord and kind of separate those things out. It's much easier just to look at Christ as Savior and, and really not look at Christ as Lord because if I look at Christ as Lord, that means I have to submit, right? Because whenever I'm calling someone Lord, I am calling them um, something that I have to submit to. But we recognize that He is not just Savior. He is the ruling Lord. He is to be the ruling Lord of, of my life. That's faith. That's actual faith. But again, to receive Jesus as Savior and not as Lord would be to make an attempt to divide His nature in two. You take Christ, you must take all of Christ. Anything else is not Christ, is not gospel, is not truth, and it's not true faith. If you can't accept, if, if I can't accept what He's requiring of me as my Lord, then my faith is not going to be a faith that saves. People come to Christ but oftentimes they don't have a true faith because they're unwilling to submit. So when we're faithful to Christ, awareness, appreciation, obedience, all of these things should increase. When we're unfaithful, all those things, of course, they diminish. But the fact of the Lordship of Jesus in our life must be present the moment He becomes our Savior. There are many that make the so-called decision for Jesus, but have not given any consideration to recognizing Him as Lord. Now notice, I didn't say make Him Lord. We don't make Jesus Lord of anything. Jesus is Lord. It's the recognition of Him as Lord and submitting to Him. Now, how's it manifested? Because there's a lot of ways that faith is manifested, but what's he talk about here? Paul talks here about this being manifested as love. Paul gives thanks for the genuine love of the Ephesian believers. Christian love does not have discrimination. There's no discrimination in Christian love. It doesn't say, I'm going to love this believer and not that one. I might have a recognition even that, that this one believer is more difficult to love than that believer, but there's still no discrimination. I'm still loving these people. It doesn't say that, that I'm going to be discriminated. Christ loves all believers. Why? Because they are precious to Him. And so by definition, Christian love extends to all Christians. To the extent that it is not, it is less than Christian. This is to love genuinely. This is to love sacrificially when necessary. John said in 1 John 3.14 that the way that we know that we have passed from death into life is that we love the brethren. If you don't love, and it says you abide in death. Great and sound theology, doctrine, it's wonderful. We're taught that here, right? But it's not a substitute for love. You remember, without love, the best doctrine in the world is like a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong. True salvation goes from the head, the heart of the believer, out to other believers, out to the world to touch unbelievers then and to do it in the name of Christ. True salvation produces true love and true love acts in deed. It acts in truth. This is the kind of love that apparently the Ephesian Christians had for all the saints. Faith is important, but it has to be kept in balance, kept in check with love. There have been monks there's been hermits, 
that have made attempts to keep their faith pure. They thought by isolating themselves they would keep their faith more pure. They do this for decades, some of them. But this is not what the Lord is commanding us to do, but the Lord is commanding every believer to love. It's a thing that Paul commended the Ephesians for in the place where we have to be. And then he goes into this petition for them, this prayer for them. Things that we should know, things that we should understand. There's a story that you've probably heard before of a, uh, there was a, uh, a very, very wealthy art collector and uh, he read about an extremely valuable piece of art. He had to have it. I mean, it was just, he couldn't handle life without this piece of art in his own collection. So he got one of his lackeys to go out and find this piece of art. And after about a month, uh, the person that worked for him came back and said, you own it. It's in your warehouse. It's been there for years. And this guy was willing to pay any price for something that he already had. And he'd had it for a very, very long time. Now, you'll find in this prayer and what Paul is doing here, Paul prayed that the Ephesians would be spared from frantically searching for that which they already had and would instead see that the great God who is their God, their Father, is the source of what they already have if they would just utilize it. Now, if you recall, this is a lot of what we talked about in the first part. We should not become wrapped up in a quest for more whenever we have it all. It's not for us to vainly spend a great deal of time and effort looking for blessings that are already there, that are already available to us. People pray for God's light, but it's already supplied to them in abundance through His Word, right? We don't need, you know, I know uh, this morning in Bible study, Logan told us, said, if you want to know what to do with your life, we've got a book on that. You know, whenever we hear about God's will for our life, we've got a book on that. And he said, you'll spend a lifetime doing this. You don't need to look for writing in the sky, right? You don't need to look for a special sign. Give me a sign. You don't need a sign. You've got an entire book. You'll spend a lifetime doing this. God's light is supplied to us in abundance in His Word. And our need is to follow what we have, to trust what we have now. You know, it's, it's often we pray for strength, but His Word tells us, right? We do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That doesn't mean that we use that as a coach to score more touchdowns or something like that, right? I mean, that's, that's not what that verse means. What's it mean? It means for His glory. It means for His purpose. It means for His kingdom, right? If we're believers, we don't need to pray for more love. We don't need to pray for more grace. We need to pray for more peace. We have it. We have to actually use it, right? We have to be obedient in those things. We, we might pray for obedience and then be obedient. We ask for wisdom, and we should expect to receive that wisdom, right? We simply know that no Christian needs or can have more of the Lord or of His blessing and inheritance than what he already has. Paul's driving them to a realization of that. You need to understand that, is what he's saying. You need to understand what you already have. You're not seeing. Maybe you need to get a grasp more of what you already have. This is why Paul told us, as he told the Ephesian believers, not to seek more spiritual resources, but to understand and use those we were given in an absolute completeness the moment we received Christ. An understanding that is what we need. 
If we lack it, what do we do? We must get in the Word. We must read it. We must pray through it. An understanding of the greatness of God's plan. Verse 18 he said, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? So, we take a misunderstanding that I've mentioned. Corinth, right? These are people that had a serious case of immaturity, right? Spiritual immaturity. And a lot of that was wrapped up in a reliance upon feelings, above knowledge. Now, we see this, right? Uh, these are just folks that are more interested in doing what felt right rather than doing what God declared to be right. Um, follow the heart, that kind of thing. That's what people say. You should follow your heart, which is deceitful above all things, we're told, of course, in God's Word. Paul prays for the minds of the Ephesians to be enlightened. Emotions are only reliable whenever they're guided by the truth of God's Word not just following my heart and whatever those desires are. It is that this is only reliable whenever it's guided by God's truth. It's light, if you will. The Holy Spirit works on the believer's mind. He enriches it to understand divine truth that is deep, profound, and then relates it. Relates that truth to life. We're to understand the plan, the hope of His calling, the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints. He prays for God to enlighten them about the magnificent truths of, what does He name? He talks about predestination, election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, wisdom, insight, inheritance, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, this list of things. And until we comprehend who we are in Christ, again, it's that in Christ, right, that we see over and over in Ephesians, it's impossible to live obedient and fulfilling. When you and I when we understand our heavenly citizenship, we can live in obedience, live productive lives as godly citizens on earth. We have to understand that in the greatness of God's plan, there's nothing more that we need to seek, nothing more to be given or received. If we're in Him, it's there. We have it, and we will have it throughout eternity. We just need to use it. We also need an understanding of God's power. This is the power that will bring us inheritance in glory. This is the power that will is, is for those who believe, and only those who believe. To be given this power, this doesn't require some mystical experience. It doesn't require a second blessing. It doesn't require some other work of grace or something like this. It happens when you are saved. We receive His grace and power when we are saved. That assures us of the realization of our hope. Notice Paul didn't pray for power to be given to the believers there because they already had it. He prayed that they'd be given a divine awareness of what they were possessing. He was praying for them an awareness of the divine power that they had, that which they possessed already in Christ. And later in this, in this letter, in, in, in the later chapters, you see how... They, ultimately us, how we are admonished to use that power. We must understand this power in His keeping us, His securing us, His fulfilling the marvelous hope, that which is ours in Christ. The resurrection, the ascension power, the divine power that lifted Christ from the grave, 
to the earth and from the earth to heaven. That's the power that will lift us to glory. That's assurance. That's what we have. In light of that, how could we feel insecure? How could we feel forsaken? How could we feel powerless? And again, I say for our Nigerian brothers and sisters that are being killed for their faith, um, they probably understand this better than us yet again. This is the power that they, I would argue, are probably recognizing in a very real way. So that same power that raised Christ from the dead, that's the power that will raise us from the dead. Now, whenever Paul speaks of this, he speaks of this as being so certain that it's already occurred. So we should also understand that it's grounded in the greatness of God's person. It's what secures us. That's what empowers us. We need to have a focus on that greatness. Every born-again Christian should have a focus on that greatness. When we look at Him, our physical problems, our psychological problems, our, uh, even spiritual problems, these things will, will not seem so important. It's then with a proper view of Christ and a proper view of the Father that our problems, if you will, will be seen as they really are. And we can begin to work those out. You'll be happier, more importantly, have a greater joy, being more productive when our focus with our primary attention on His purity, His greatness, His holiness, His power, His majesty. It's a blessing. It's a blessing when we set our own concerns and our own needs aside and focus on the Lord of glory and, and we're allowing the Holy Spirit to do to us what Paul asked Him to do for the Ephesians, to give, a, to give us a deep understanding of the truth that is our Lord, and He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So our Lord just isn't above, but far above everything and everyone else. Again, assurance, a major theme here. This is part of the potential because obviously he's above Satan. Obviously he's above Satan's world system. He's above the holy angels. He's above the fallen angels. He's above the saved, the unsaved for all time and all eternity. He puts all things in subjection under his feet. Christ will be supreme not only in this age but also in the age to come. In the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as far as we are concerned... That which is very important is that God gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ isn't just the head of the church. He is the fullness of the church. He is the completeness of the church. He is completely over us. goes back to that lordship thing. He is completely over us. He is completely in us as supreme Lord and supreme power. That's where we're at. That's our potential. That's who we are. And that's how we need to operate. So for those of us that are born again children of God, those of us that are redeemed, it isn't just that we have something wonderful to look forward to. It's not just that there's something down the road that, that we have to look forward to that's great, but we have something now. We have the inheritance now. We have the potential now. That is the fact that Jesus Christ gives His fullness his completeness to believers so in God's wisdom and grace believers the church the body we also the fullness of him the point of the petition here of Paul and that which he would have us to understand and comprehend is yes you are secure in Christ 
This is unwavering. This is immutable. This is our hope of eternal inheritance. If we are in Christ. If we belong to Him. The power of the coming glory, it's, it's unshakable. It's, nothing is going to deter this. It will bring us to the glory of God. But we must be in Christ. We live in light of that potential. And then we will live a life that is bringing glory to God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that You would help us to see. We ask that You would... Father, as we would read back through this chapter, pray through this chapter, Father, that we would recognize the things that we already have and recognize that whenever we use these things as You have intended, as Paul is praying for those at Ephesus here, and and this extends to us, Father, that we would see what we have and that we would utilize it. That we wouldn't be searching for things frantically that we already have if we are in You. But that, Father, we would actively be using those, recognizing that these are the things that bring glory to You. Because that is what we should be about. Being in Christ is to bring glory and honor to You for Your kingdom purposes. Lord, we thank You, we praise You for all these things that we have here. And ask, Father, that You would help us. Help us to understand, help us to see more clearly. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Ben Hartwig's sermon on God's promises. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.